It is the absolute honor of my life to serve the people of Gaza, and I am so lucky to have served alongside these towering heroes that are nurses and doctors and people that are serving their communities. And that's why we'll keep going back and keep doing this work. And and, and on, the, on the flip side of that, I would say it is all of our responsibility to consider those orphans, consider those those families who are completely bereft of, of any and all um, uh, human dignity that has been taken from them. And it's, it sits with us. Their fate will sit with us. Dr. Seema Jelani, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Dr. Jelani, Senior Technical Advisor at the International Rescue Committee, where she leads their emergency health responses globally. She's recently joined an emergency team of doctors from IRC and Medical Aid for Palestinians who went to central Gaza to volunteer in the Al-Aqsa Hospital. And that does it for today's show. I'm Narmeen Sheikh with Amy Goodman. Thanks so much for joining us. You are listening to KBOO Portland. Tune in to KBU throughout February, every Tuesday at 7 p.m. for Black History Future Month, our special programming series in celebration of Black heritage. This series aims to celebrate all aspects of the Black lived experience, from contemporary, political, and social issues to understanding how history impacts our present. Again, that's Black History Future Month, every Tuesday at 7 p.m. throughout the month of February, where you will hear interviews from Black creatives, artists, activists, revolutionaries, KBU hosts, musicians, and more, here on your community radio station, KBOO Portland. Hey, KBOO listeners. KBOO cut through the clouds during our end-of-year campaign thanks to support from listeners like you. When we meet our campaign goals, we can continue to bring you colorful, radiant rays of radio. Thank you, and keep tuning in for unique music, cutting-edge news, and transformative public affairs on the airwaves. And now, your daily volunteer-produced community newscast, the KBU Evening News. Coming up on the KBU Evening News, the ACLU sues Washington County over their practice of sending cops to mental health calls. The Washington State Senate votes unanimously to ban hog-tying by police in memory of Manny Ellis. And in national news, Congress debates a new immigration bill. Good evening. This is the KBU Evening News for Tuesday, February 6, 2024. I'm Eric Leuschner. The American Civil Liberties Union of Oregon and Disability Rights Oregon take Washington County to court for sending cops to mental health emergencies instead of health care workers. The lawsuit alleges that the county sends 911 calls for mental health crises to police even though statistics and experts show that results in deadly outcomes. Disability Rights Oregon CEO Jake Cornett said in a statement, quote, Police are neither trained nor appropriate responders for someone who has broken their leg and calls 911, and the same holds for someone having a mental health emergency, end quote. 
A Washington County spokesperson said they've been working with the ACLU and other groups for two months to try to address this. Part of the issue is that the mental health crises teams that Washington County does have don't respond to 911 calls. They respond to 988 calls or if a first responder requests them. The lawsuit alleges that those teams are underfunded and understaffed. There's one named individual, Joshua Wesley, in the lawsuit, who alleges Washington County violated the Americans with Disabilities Act. Wesley called a suicide hotline in 2022 and the county sent five sheriff's deputies. When Wesley was transported to the hospital, he reached for one of their guns, saying, let me kill myself. The sheriff's deputy stabbed Wesley, who was then hospitalized for three weeks and charged with a crime. The lawsuit points to other successful mental health first responder programs like in Eugene, Denver, and San Francisco. Portland's program, Portland Street Response, is facing major budget cuts. The lawsuit asks for the court to issue an injunction effectively forcing the county to, quote, ensure that mental health professionals are the default first responders for typical mental health emergencies, end quote. The Washington State Senate unanimously voted to approve a bill to ban police from hog-tying suspects. It's a restraint technique that has serious risk of suffocation, and the U.S. Department of Justice has recommended against it since at least 1995. In 2020, in Tacoma, Manuel Ellis, a 33-year-old black man, died face down after cops cuffed his hands and feet together behind him. His death was a touchstone for racial justice demonstrators in the Pacific Northwest. The three officers involved in his death were acquitted of murder and manslaughter charges in December. All 49 Washington state senators voted to ban the practice, which was permitted by at least four local agencies. Now the bill heads to the State House for further consideration. The Senate unveils an immigration bill that includes Ukraine and Israel, but the House, GOP, opposes it. Most Americans want a verdict on Trump's election subversion before November, and online data security could mitigate radicalization. With more on the story, it's Alex Gonzalez with 2024 Talks. Welcome to 2024 Talks, where we're following our democracy in historic times. The vote will be the most important that the Senate has taken in a very long time to ensure America's future prosperity and security. Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is calling on the Senate to pass a foreign aid and border deal Wednesday, describing it as vital for national security. The bill would make it harder for migrants to claim asylum and would provide $118 billion in funding for the border and for Ukraine, Israel and Taiwan. Former President Donald Trump and the hard right in the House oppose any deal with Democrats, and Speaker Mike Johnson says the legislation is dead if it could even pass the Senate. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell says Republicans have repeatedly demanded it and now have to support it. This is a humanitarian and security crisis of historic proportions. And Senate Republicans have insisted, not just for months, but for years, that this urgent crisis demanded action. After a trip to the Texas border, Utah Governor Spencer Cox joined 14 other Republican governors in calling on the president and federal government to do more to deter illegal crossings. We're talking about 3.2 million people in just the last calendar year. And to put that into perspective, there are 3.4 million people in the state of Utah right now. So an equivalent to our number of people. And those are the people that we know about. After not having participated in any of the primary debates, Trump, the Republican frontrunner, says he's eager to debate President Joe Biden. In Nevada Monday, ahead of the primary there, Biden made what could be read as a dismissive backhand reference to Trump's extensive legal troubles. 
A new CNN poll finds a majority of Americans want a verdict before the election on the federal charges that Trump tried to overturn the 2020 election. Trump has done his best to delay trials in all 91 of the criminal charges pending against him, and many expect him to pardon himself if he wins re-election. Election officials, especially out west, are under intense partisan pressure, and many are quitting. Patty Hansen, the recorder for Coconino County in northern Arizona, says federal lawmakers need to be better funding election administration and security. Some jurisdictions are wealthier than others and have a better tax base. And I do think it's something the federal government should be looking at for providing the necessary funds. Seven out of 10 Americans believe the federal government should be just as, if not more, responsible for election funding than local municipalities and states. Some experts are pointing to social media algorithms as radicalizing users and increasing extremism. Michael Chertoff with the National Council on Election Integrity says better protecting data privacy can make the algorithms less destructive without infringing on free speech. I do think we could regulate access to data, uses of data, and the application of algorithms to that data without offending the First Amendment. I'm Alex Gonzalez for Pacific Network and Public News Service. Find our trust indicators at publicnewsservice.org. Today, February 6th, is Safer Internet Day, a yearly campaign that spotlights potential risks and easy methods to safeguard yourself while online. Groups and organizations such as Connect Safely are co-hosting virtual events for parents, focusing on navigating digital screens with children and teens. Tramel Gomes has more on the story in Tallahassee. As Florida lawmakers advance bills to restrict children's access to social media, today's Safer Internet Day is a global campaign to raise awareness about the benefits and risks of connected technology. With the theme, Together for a Better Internet, organizers are calling on parents to get more involved and open lines of communication with their kids about their screen times. National Parent-Teacher Association President Yvonne Johnson says families and caregivers should aim to promote healthy digital habits by having open dialogue about the use of various apps and websites that are accessible. We want families literally to have these conversations with their kids because they gotta, first of all, they should be talking to each other, but they definitely should be talking about what they're doing on the internet because as you know, there's a lot of things that can happen. Families should have a plan for their internet use and should openly discuss do's and don'ts, such as avoiding sharing personal information. Johnson says they've partnered with Connect Safely to host a free virtual event called Smart Digital Parenting. Anyone can register at saferinternetday.us. Last week, the Florida House approved a contentious bill prohibiting children younger than 16 from accessing popular social media platforms regardless of parental consent. Johnson suggests a strategy to encourage healthy use of digital platforms, termed the three T's, talk, try, and teach. This approach involves actively engaging with your children by downloading an app they're interested in, learning it together, and navigating the platform collaboratively to promote a safer online experience. This way you can talk together about it and make sure that they're not using it. And then teaching your kids about security and privacy settings. That's probably one of the top things and other tools that are available in the app. Proponents argue that the bill safeguards children from the dangers of social media, including bullying, predators, and mental health issues. Opponents claim it violates the First Amendment and believe parents should decide which sites their children can access. This is Tramel Gomes for Florida News Connection.
Recent research has found the impact of wildfire smoke is great on indoor air quality for long-term care facilities. Eric Tegadoff reports from Idaho. Wildfire smoke impacts air quality in long-term care facilities, according to reporting from KFF Health News. Recent research of facilities in Idaho found at-risk populations in these facilities experience bad air quality when wildfire smoke rolls in. Luke Montrose is an environmental toxicologist and researcher at Colorado State University. He installed monitors in Idaho facilities to measure this problem in 2020. We were somewhat astonished for some of these facilities how much of the smoke outside during a wildfire smoke event actually got inside. There were a few facilities during a couple events where it was essentially the same outside and inside. Tiny particles found in wildfire smoke known as PM2.5 can get deep into people's lungs and bloodstreams, causing lasting damage. During these events, the particles pose an outsized danger for people with pre-existing heart and lung conditions, such as older people in long-term care facilities. Mark Trowin is the regional maintenance director for 10 Edgewood healthcare facilities in the Boise area. Four installed monitors last year. They started a study and was reaching out to facilities to see if they would participate in the study. And I said, yes, by all means, you know, anything to keep my residents safe. Head of the Idaho Healthcare Association, Robert Vandemerwe, says the air quality information from monitors provides key information to facilities in Idaho. Having that data was really powerful, and now we can share that, not just a hunch or a suspicion, but actual data, and help facilities mitigate that problem during fire season. For Northern Rockies News Service, I'm Eric Tegadoff. This story was produced with original reporting from Kylie Moore for KFF Health News. Better broadband access in rural areas could help the planet. It would enable residents to telecommute to work and appointments, reducing transportation-related pollution. Dr. Anthony Lysowitz has more on the story with Climate Connections. I'm Dr. Anthony Lysowitz, and this is Climate Connections. Technology has come a long way since dial-up internet first allowed people to get online. Today, most U.S. residents have access to high-speed internet, but some rural residents are being left behind. The best way to characterize broadband access in rural regions is that it's spotty. There's areas that have very good access and others that have almost none. Mark Kelkey is with the West Central Initiative, a community foundation that serves nine counties in West Central Minnesota. His group advocates for better access to broadband internet in the region, He says broadband could benefit people and the climate. That's because rural residents often commute a long distance to go to work, visit the doctor, or spend time with friends. And all that driving emits carbon pollution. Our region, because of the distances between communities and services, we have a very high vehicle miles traveled rate. With reliable high-speed internet, more residents could take advantage of telehealth appointments and remote work opportunities. So Kelke says improving access to broadband internet in rural areas could help reduce carbon pollution from vehicles and improve people's quality of life. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. To learn more about climate change, visit climateconnections.org. listening to the KBU Evening News. Stay tuned after this newscast for an in-depth interview with researcher Morgan Godvin. 
We'll talk through her remarkable survey of Oregon drug users and what it reveals about Oregon's drug decriminalization measure 110. At 6 o'clock, it's Transpositive PDX. Then at 7, it's the debut episode of KBOO's 2024 Black History and Future series. Sunseer Shakur interviews Portland Black Panther Kent Ford. Tonight's weather will be cloudy with an overnight low of 43 degrees. Tomorrow's weather will be cloudy as well with a high of 48 degrees. Today in history, in 1996, the Willamette Valley flood began. In Portland, the river came within inches of flowing over the seawall in Tom McCall Waterfront Park. At least five rivers in Oregon crested at all-time highs during the floods. Downtown Oregon City and Tillamook were submerged for several days during these floods. The quote of the day is from former President Ronald Reagan. Born today in 1911, he said, quote, Politics is supposed to be the second oldest profession. I've come to realize that it bears a very close resemblance to the first. Across the U.S., local governments are reconsidering place names that have a racist or colonial history. But this week, a South Dakota Senate committee rejects a move to change a racist place name. With that story and more, it's Antonia Gonzalez with National Native News. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. A South Dakota Senate committee is rejecting an effort to rename the Scalp Creek Lakeside Recreation Area in the state. Democrat Senator Sean Bordeaux is Sichangu Lakota from Rosebud. He says it's time for the state to move away from hurtful names. Scalp Creek Recreation Area is a beautiful place, often visited by families and children. Such a place should not be marked by an association with such terrible history. South Dakota should take the initiative here and change the name to fit the place. Bordeaux proposes the area be named Nakatopa, which translates to Four Chiefs. State Game Fish and Parks opposed the bill idea. Scott Simpson is Deputy Secretary with the department. He says the name change should not appear in state statute. This legislation is not necessary because South Scout Creek Lakeside Use Area is not named in statute. I think that that should be a much more public process. There's no official process for the, the naming of a lakeside use area. We believe that we've got an open palette, and I visited with the, the sponsor about this. Um, I think that there's some different directions that we could go and maybe come up with uh, an appropriate uh, alternative. Simpson says a name change public input process could take as long as a year, but could not offer a firm timeline. Senator Bordeaux says he'll work with Game, Fish, and Parks officials through the process. The leader of an effort to create an intertribal network of electric vehicle charging stations says the project is rolling along. Chuck Kornbach of station WUWM reports. Bob Blake heads Native Sun Community Power Development, a nonprofit in Minneapolis that promotes renewable energy. Blake is also a tribal citizen of the Red Lake Nation. He says a few years ago he was protesting the Dakota Access crude oil pipeline in the upper Midwest and staring down law enforcement officers that he respected. I'm sitting there and I'm protesting and they're looking at me and I'm thinking to myself, there's got to be an easier way to do this. So in an attempt to reduce the demand for oil, Blake says he got the idea of creating an intertribal electric vehicle charging network. With financial help from the U.S. Department of Energy, about 10 charging stations have been built on tribal lands, and electric vehicles have been delivered to the Red Lake and Standing Rock communities. 
Blake says 20 to 30 tribes, mainly in the upper Midwest, seem interested in creating the charging network. So he's fired up. I am pretty excited about it because it's always, you know, tribal nations are always the last to get this type of technology. You know, for us to be able to be the first, I mean, it's a big thing. Blake says having charging stations on a lot of tribal lands should also help draw tourists if electric vehicle use continues to grow. He says he hopes to expand the intertribal charging station network to the West Coast. For National Native News, I'm Chuck Kornbach. On Monday, the New Mexico Senate confirmed Josette Monette as Cabinet Secretary for the Indian Affairs Department. She had served as Deputy Secretary of the Department and prior to joining the state was in the legal field and in education. Monette is from the Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa Indians in North Dakota and she's raised three children as a single mother. In a statement, Monette says she's committed to advancing the priorities of the governor's administration in support of the 23 tribes in the state and all of New Mexico's Native people. She's replacing a cabinet secretary who was criticized by Native women advocates for past abuse charges. The governor's office also faced criticism for ending a missing and murdered Indigenous Relatives Task Force. Monette was unanimously confirmed by the Senate. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. The U.S. economy prizes tech and innovation, and experts say rural areas need more math and computer offerings to add jobs lost to the pandemic and to the Great Recession. Roz Brown has more on the story. Rural America got a population boost from the pandemic, but the tally of 20 million rural workers is still below 2019 pre-pandemic levels, and the decline actually began much earlier. Rural employment began falling in 2008 at the start of the Great Recession and did not recover at the same rate as urban areas. Matt Dune with the Center on Rural Innovation says metro areas in states like Texas now have higher employment because technology innovation drives a larger share of economic growth. The traditional industries in rural places saw many of those jobs automated away either through offshoring or allowing large multinational corporations to do more with fewer people. Government, agriculture, manufacturing, healthcare, retail, and hospitality are the top employment industries in rural America, where 46 million people live, roughly 14% of the U.S. population. Dune says computer and math jobs are core to future innovation, but rural areas have only 5% of those jobs. He says they need 12% to create a more equal playing field. Economics professor Mark White with the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign says there are fewer young people in rural America because Generation Z is smaller than the millennial generation. He believes that creates an urgency to invest in rural workforce training in fields like healthcare, manufacturing, agriculture, and construction. I think there are a lot of employers around rural America who are screaming for help, and there's simply fewer people. And I think that there needs to be a way to introduce young people to the opportunities that are available and get them excited about it. Dune says in recent decades, young people have repeatedly heard that successful tech careers are only possible for city dwellers, when in this Internet age, that should no longer be true. Rural places have strong K-12 schools, but they don't give a pathway for those students who are successful in continuing on to higher education to be able to come home, to be in the place that they love and would prefer to be. For Texas News Service, I'm Roz Brown. Support for this reporting was provided by Lumina Foundation. Three negotiating tracks are ongoing to temporarily stop the fighting in Israel and set the stage for a future Palestinian state. 
a so-called Biden doctrine that would include the two-state solution and isolation of Iran, is reportedly being considered. Yet ending the war and avoiding a regional conflict still seems like distant goals. Now we go to Global Citizen commentary on the issue from Portland State Professor Emeritus Mel Gertov. The opinions expressed in the following piece are those of the speaker. The New York Times reported January 27 on three negotiating tracks that are being pursued simultaneously to end the Israel-Hamas war. Days later, the influential New York Times columnist Thomas Friedman wrote about the potential for a Biden doctrine on the Middle East that would build on those talks. I must say with regard to both the negotiating tracks and a Biden doctrine that neither seems likely to succeed at the moment. Changes on the battlefield in Israeli official and public opinion and in U.S.-Iran relations might alter the situation for the better, but equally or more certain will threaten to do the opposite. Track one is a Hamas hostage release in exchange for a time-limited ceasefire and Israel's release of Palestinian prisoners. Hamas is demanding a permanent ceasefire, not simply a pause. A deal that includes the release of some hostages and some prisoners seems most likely. President Biden has sent the CIA director, William Burns, to the Middle East to move the negotiations along, but so far there has been no progress. Track two is an overhaul of the Palestinian Authority, the PA, so as to make it a more efficient and less corrupt entity to rule in Gaza. Mahmoud Abbas, the 88-year-old, a long-time PA leader, wants to name his own successor. That idea won't float with the U.S. or the Arab states. There is also discussion of having a multinational force take charge of Gaza's post-war security, but no agreement has been reached about the composition of that force. Track three is normalization of Saudi-Israel relations. Saudi Arabia's price for such an agreement is high, probably too high, a security agreement with the United States, U.S. support of a Saudi nuclear power program, and U.S. support for creation of a Palestinian state with Palestinian control of Gaza. A security treaty with Saudi Arabia probably lacks support in the U.S. Senate, and the Netanyahu government is unalterably opposed to Palestinian statehood, as well as to the PA. Two developments in the past few weeks threatened to upend these options. One is a wider war stemming from a drone attack by an Iran-backed militia group that killed three U.S. servicemen in Lebanon. U.S. airstrikes, perhaps as many as a hundred, have now occurred in Iraq, Syria, and Yemen. President Biden is being pressed by Republicans and others to go after Iran. That would give the Republicans the war they've always wanted, one even Donald Trump sought to avoid. The other development is Israel's charge that a dozen aid workers for the UN Relief Organization in Gaza, the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestinian Refugees, helped Hamas in its October 7 attack. Several countries, including the US, which is the largest donor by far, at about $343 million, have stopped providing financial aid to the group. That withdrawal could essentially put the group out of business at a time when around 6 million Palestinian refugees depend on it. Kenneth Roth, the longtime director of Human Rights Watch, had this comment, quote, I wish the U.S. government were as quick to suspend military aid to Israel upon an international court of justice finding of plausible genocide as it is to suspend aid to the U.N. group. The Biden doctrine, in Friedman's take, would adopt tracks two and three and add one new track on Iran. Track one would take aim at Iran's support of the so-called Axis of Resistance militias, such as Hamas, Hezbollah, and the Houthis. Track two would focus on creating an independent, demilitarized Palestinian state in Gaza and the West Bank. 
and track three would secure Israel-Saudi Arabia relations, part of the Saudis' price being movement toward a Palestinian state. The overall aim of this new strategy for the U.S. would be to isolate Iran and weaken the various militias by carrying out a long overdue commitment to the two-state solution. Saudi Arabia and its neighbors would welcome such a commitment and the undermining of Iran's appeal that would go with it. In addition, this new strategy would also seek to weaken the far right's hold on power in Israel by essentially forcing it to accept the Palestinian state and the mutual security it would promise. On paper, there's much to recommend this Biden doctrine, assuming it is real. Most importantly, it finally breaks with the past in pressing forward on an independent Palestine. But would this policy get support in a Congress that has always been Israel first? Would the policy survive criticism that it ignores corruption and ineffectiveness in the Palestinian leadership, that it is a knife in the back of the Netanyahu government, and that it evades responsibility for Gaza's reconstruction and Hamas's murders? Furthermore, isolating Iran, much less attacking it, may be a recipe for more endless war in the Middle East. The nuclear deal with Iran had actually greatly reduced Iran's support of its proxy forces. Both Trump's and Biden's failure to carry through on the deal has led to greater Iranian support of those groups, further steps toward developing a nuclear weapon, and closer Iran relations with Russia and China. I see no reason why this Biden doctrine couldn't embrace re-engagement with Iran simultaneously with diplomacy on Palestinian statehood and Saudi-Israeli rapprochement. I'm Mel Gartov for The Global Citizen. Thanks for listening. You're listening to the KBU Evening News for Tuesday, February 6, 2024. This is a volunteer-produced newscast, and we encourage your participation. Call or text us with your breaking news stories and tips at 971-245-2158. Our production team for tonight's newscast includes Mel Gertov. The producer is Althea Billings, and our engineer is Otto. Special thanks to Antonia Gonzalez, Eric Tagadoff, Jamel Gomes, Alex Gonzalez, Roz Brown, and Dr. Anthony Lysowitz. The director of Evening News is Althea Billings. A podcast of this newscast is available on our website at kboo.fm slash eveningnews. You are listening to KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM, K282BH Philomath on 104.3 FM, and K220HR Hood River on 91.9 FM. All of our KBOO programs, including the Evening News, are supported by our members. If you would like to become a member and support our programming, you can go to kboo.fm slash give or text KBOO to the number 44321. Stay tuned now for KBOO News In-Depth. KBOO News In-Depth, where we take a deeper look at the top news stories impacting our community. You are listening to KBOO News In-Depth. I'm Althea Billings. Oregon lawmakers are back in Salem for the next five weeks for the short legislative session. Their priorities include housing, homelessness, and Measure 110, Oregon's drug decriminalization measure. It was passed by voters in 2020, and it decriminalizes the possession of small amounts of drugs and redirects cannabis tax dollars to fund addiction recovery services, something that has been underinvested in in Oregon historically. Lawmakers announced plans to recriminalize the possession of small amounts of drugs after major public outcry about public drug use that is tied to the dual crisis of housing and homelessness. 
But the question of what impact did Measure 110 have on Oregon is not necessarily a matter of personal opinion. It's a question of scientific inquiry, one that many researchers have taken up in the past four years. On January 22nd, RTI International hosted a research symposium in Salem, bringing together researchers from different disciplines who've examined Measure 110 and the funding it's brought to treatment programs. Morgan Godwin of the Alcohol, 